Alright, don't get me wrong, travelling around the universe on board the tardigrade is great fun. But you soon run out of stuff to eat and drink. There's absolutely no shops out there. And as much as David's a welcome addition to the team, he's yet another mouth to feed. I've started to run out of the ingredients for my kale, spirulina and avocado smoothies I know everyone loves so much. So I took the opportunity was hovering around Venus for me to jump in one of the wee shuttles and nip back down to Earth for some supplies. Before I left, I asked around to see if anyone needed anything from the shop. I've got a wee list here. So we need uh, bread, milk, tea, coffee, beer, biscuits, pizzas, crisps, and a copy of Paris Hilton's critically acclaimed 2006 album Paris. It's interesting. Actually, I'll also need to nip into the hobby shop for some more orc miniatures. Half of mine's have went missing. But it isn't all mundane earth-based shopping trips. This is hostile worlds after all. The highly produced space science audio drama documentary podcast. You don't want to listen to me walking around a shopping centre, do you? So whilst I'm back on my home planet, I decided to kill two birds with one stone and gather some new material for the show. See, the town of St Andrews in Scotland might primarily be known as the home of golf, but it's also home to a very large telescope. Not the very large telescope, which is literally the name of a very large telescope in Chile, but a very large telescope nonetheless. I took a trip to St Andrews yesterday to get a wee look at it, and I also bumped into the lovely chap who's in charge of the observatory itself. So first things first, this is an audio show, what does a very large telescope actually sound like? Yeah, this is a bit exaggerated sounds for a telescope. Most telescopes are very quiet and you don't hear anything, you just hear humming and that's it. This one has big motors, lots of vibration, mm -hmm. it's 50 years old and lots of things are improvised. Lots of things are badly lubricated also. <laughs> so my name is Alex Scholz, I'm an astronomer. I'm working at the University of St. Andrews. I'm a lecturer, I'm also a first year coordinator for the undergrad program and I'm also in charge of our observatory um, in St. Andrews where we operate telescopes for teaching research and outreach. And we're sitting here in the dome of the James Gregory Telescope, which is the biggest telescope in Scotland. It was intended to be used for research, but it wasn't made accessible to anyone outside the five people who were working here. Right, so the telescope is really interesting, but Alex himself is a fountain of knowledge on all things space, as you'd expect. So in this short episode, I thought it'd be a good opportunity for him to teach us about something big. And it doesn't get much bigger than the birth, life and death of a star. So the entire life story of a star is basically a battle between competing forces. On one side you always have gravity, and the other side you have something else. So it's gravity against something else, and it starts at birth. So stars are born when nebula, clouds of gas, cool gas, collapse under their own weight, colloquially speaking. That means their own gravity has to overcome the internal heat. That's the balancing force. If you heat gas up, it will expand, it will get bigger. Um, the cloud of gas will get bigger. On the other side, the gravity will push it together. If gravity exceeds the, the energy stored in the, in the cloud by heat, 
then the cloud or fragments of the cloud will start to collapse and you form something that is dense and hot and that's what we call a star. You might argue that this collapse can continue forever. It will just collapse and you get something that is incredibly dense and that's it. But at some point the conditions and the cores of stars will become sufficiently extreme to ignite hydrogen fusion. You have very high temperatures and density and then fusion processes set in and now you're producing new more heat in the interior. So now there's another source of, of energy in the interior of the stars that can balance the gravitational pressure from the outside. Now you have a different sort of balance between gravity pushing from the outside and fusion processes generating energy from the inside. And that's the state of the sun today. It's producing energy in the inside and gravity pushes from the outside and that's why it stays stable. But that can't last forever as you can easily imagine if you sit in the car and you gas in the tank and you drive around at some point you run out of fuel and then you stop and the same thing will happen with stars when you wait long enough they run out of fuel they run out of hydrogen in their core then starts a sequence of complicated steps where gravity is balanced for some time by other fusion processes in the core where the star changes in structure it expands for a while but ultimately all of this has to stop somewhere and ultimately it leads to a collapse Ultimately, gravity wins in this process, in this process that might take billions of years, and you end up with very dense remnants of stars, and those are called white dwarfs, neutron stars, or black holes. That's sort of the, the graveyard of stars that you, you end up with. The defining criterion that determines the fate of a star is its mass. So a star like the Sun, in fact most stars, um, those are stars with relatively low masses. Astronomers would call them low mass those stars will end up as white dwarfs. In a white dwarf, the gravitational push from the outside is balanced by what we call degeneracy pressure from the inside. You push the electrons in the star close enough together so that they keep start resisting. It's a quantum effect. You can't push electrons together infinitely dense. You can't pack them infinitely dense. You have to, at some point, they will resist. That's a white dwarf. And the universe is full with white dwarfs. There are many, many of them because these stars are very common. If you go to more massive objects, then this electron degeneracy pressure is also not enough to withstand gravity and they will collapse to something that is even more extreme. The first thing is a neutron star where you only have a core of neutrons um, and the atoms themselves are collapsed. Gravity is strong enough to, to collapse atoms. And beyond that, you get to the realm of black holes where the mass is so strong that uh, the gravitational pull is so strong that light can't escape anymore. And that's the fate of the most massive stars in the universe. The Sun will end up as a white dwarf. There are cases where white dwarfs ultimately also explode and might become a supernova and might become something more extreme. But in that case, you would have to have some other influence. You have to have another star nearby or a companion and they have to merge or collide then you can get into extreme and weird situations. The explosions of stars that happen when two white dwarfs merge, or when a white dwarf grows further and accretes enough mass so that it becomes unstable, and that will trigger a thermonuclear blast that will disrupt the whole, the whole white dwarf and it will disappear. Those are called supernova, a specific type of supernova, and those objects are incredibly useful, those explosions, because they always lead to the same brightness. The explosion is always at the same brightness, which means when you see something like that somewhere in the universe, you know how bright, how much energy is produced there. 
It's always the same process, physical process, supposedly. And that means you can, you can get a handle on the distance from, from that explosion. And because it's an explosion, it's very bright. You can see them to very large distances. So those are the kind of objects that have been used to map the expansion of the universe, because you can see them very far out. The end of the fusion reaction in the core of the Sun will have an impact on all planets in the solar system. It will have an impact on the entire structure of our solar system. It will have an impact on Earth. The Sun will start to expand and will become 100 times bigger than it is today. And that means we are either engulfed by the Sun at that point, or we are very close to being engulfed. And we are, the temperature on Earth is going to be much hotter. Oceans will disappear. Life as we know it will probably disappear if it's still here in five billion years. Um, so everything is going to change and the same applies to the outer solar system. Uh, conditions there might become more habitable. You might turn ice um, frozen planets into oceans. You might turn worlds that are currently inhabitable to something that is more interesting for life. So let's assume I have a spaceship that protects me from everything. Let's assume I can go wherever I like. For astronomers, distance is always a big obstacle. There's everything you're seeing, you're battling the distance. And particularly if you're interested in formation, if you want to find out the origin of brown dwarfs or the origin of rogue planets, you need to catch them very early on. And the problem is we, the nearest young stars, the nearest regions where stars and planets are currently forming, are still about 300, 400, 500 light years away. And that means it's very hard to, to see what's going on there. It's very hard to see it in great detail. The next problem is when stars are forming and when planets are forming, it happens in sort of a cocoon of gas and dust from which they are forming. So they form from a nebula and therefore at the beginning you can't see what's happening. So when you work in that area, it's the frustrating aspect is that you can't see the parts that are interesting. You catch them later and then you infer backwards what might have happened early on with the help of simulations, with the help of conjecture and these kind of techniques that we've developed over the years. Um, so one desire is obviously to go there, to just to be closer, that's one thing, to sit just a few light years away from a star-forming cloud, or even to be inside that cloud, to travel into the cocoon and to have an infrared telescope, because you're not going to see it by eye, um, the interesting stuff, you need infrared telescope and detectors, and then to observe close up exactly what happens. We have seen artists' impression of that, where artists visualize that, where you're sitting there and you watch a star, you watch the swirling nebula of gas around it, where material is spiraling inwards, the star is still growing from that. Um, you start seeing sort of little rocky bits accumulating to planets, and you start seeing the planetary systems emerging. That entire process will take millions of years, so the second thing I'm going to ask for is a time machine to be able to run through that and fast forward. But being there and sitting there and just taking pictures of these evolving, emerging planetary systems with their emerging stars, that would be incredibly interesting. Huge thanks to Alex there for his crash course on the life cycle of a star. And we'll be hearing more from him in the near future too on the subject of brown dwarfs. So make sure you're subscribed to the show and your podcatcher of choice if you haven't done so already. On the next episode, the Tardigrade team will be exploring the surface of Venus. I'm really looking forward to hearing all about that. 
And come to think of it, I should probably add some after sun lotion to my shopping list. Anyway, this has been Hostile Worlds, and as ever, you'll find everything you need to know about the podcast at our website, hostileworlds.net. Thanks again to Alex, thanks to St Andrews University, and a big thanks also to you for listening. We'll see you on the next one.